one of the things about uh, lecturing on difficult subjects is you get to teach the stuff you need to know the most. Today's uh, presentation is on the challenge of anger. So, I think we're all in good company. I'm going to ask for your help here. Based on your experiences of anger, not necessarily your anger, but other people's anger, based on your experiences of anger, what would you say are the most negative consequences that came out of it? Just hurting someone else. Hurting myself. Once it came out my mouth, I can't say it didn't come out my mouth. Same, Same thing. Same Dina? Okay, if, I, if, if it's taken the wrong way, or if I say it harshly enough, I could permanently damage a relationship. That could cause a lot of pain. It's even negative for other people around, particularly if a husband and wife are fighting and children are listening, but even in the workplace, two people are screaming at each other, and you're going to be affected by So I'm going to create tension um, in the area where the anger is taking place. So if there's co-workers or clients or children, uh, even my parents, then they're going to be affected by it as well. Okay, in, uh, in your experience, you never noticed anger actually ever solving uh, or being a solution to what I was angry about. Yeah. Interesting. It creates more anger. Sorry? It leads to more anger. My, my anger often leads to even more of it. Because I'm angry that I'm angry. That really gets me angry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, one of the key things I think about anger is either seeing something control. Okay, so you're saying two things. When I'm out of control, which is what anger is partially or all about, then I don't feel proud of myself being out of control. And then when I see someone else out of control, and their out of control is about me, their anger is against me, I'm not usually in a listening mode, I'm probably in defense or, or attack back mode. So we don't eventually actually manage to communicate, which is probably what you were discussing before. It doesn't become a solution. It can distort the reality. My anger can distort the reality because now I'm not willing to, to talk about the facts because uh, I'm emotionally hurt. So I might get... In, to exaggerate and then start bringing up the past. I've got an amazing memory for uh-huh. your faults. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think the victim of another person's anger feels that there's a lack of love there. A okay, so that if there's a love relationship between us and, and I uh, emotionally get angry with you, then you might pick up the message that I, I don't really have love for you because if I really loved you, how would I be angry with you? So it could damage the, it could damage the love. might even take it away. Any other suggestions? Okay, so uh, one more. It damages my relationship with God because I think you're onto something very, very real. It damages my relationship with God, with Hashem, because Hashem, if you're really running the world, and that includes this particular event or this particular person that I'm angry with then uh, where are you? I mean, if you gave me permission to run the unfolding of uh, history, then let me explain to you how it really should be done. In other words, in my moment of anger, I have to kind of deny your presence and your existence, because if you were around, surely you'd be just and help them want to see, see my point of view. So it's a very interesting point you're saying there, yeah. Is your name, sorry? Terry. Terry, okay, so Terry's moving us into another direction, which is a, a different question I was going to come to, which is, well... If, angry, if anger almost never works, and probably never works, or almost never at least, and there are so many 
downsides that are quite real, very harmful, very painful. Um, and we can talk about violence and murder being an eventual outcome of anger. Uh, we can talk about conflict and wars and uh, mass murder as an outcome of not dealing with differences and we're dealing it through anger. Now we're, we're switching to another dimension. Remind me what your point was? A control issue. That there's a benefit that I must be plugging into when I am angry because why am I choosing anger if it never works? There, must be, there has to be some form of function that the anger is playing. So, the, okay, so, so that's interesting. So Terry's saying that anger is, can be about me wanting to have control, but the funny thing about anger is that I'm out of control. It's interesting. Alright, so we're going to have to, we have to look at uh, this, because it's kind of uh, uh, creates confusion for us. I think what we're describing is very interesting. When we study middas, when we study the measures of character traits in the Torah, especially when we look at Rambam, who's who is one of the major sources of bringing together different character traits, and a lot of our Musas for him, a lot of the books on Jewish ethics take their sources from Maimonides and from the Gemara, from the Talmud, what well, we discover something absolutely fascinating. Every single character trait, which is negative, we're supposed to search for the right measure of it. <coughs> Meaning to say, it's never, you can never say you're not allowed to kill. The Torah forbids you to kill, even though you read in in chapter 20 of Exodus, you shall not kill. Well, wouldn't you say you shouldn't kill? But it depends. If, if someone's trying to kill you, then you're allowed to kill them. So you see that the answer isn't that murder is wrong. It might be right. Well, if it's in self-defense. There are many character traits, negative, which one needs to employ in the right context at the right measure. Except for two, which the Talmud and Maimonides brings as halachic guidelines, direction. There's two character traits one of them we're discussing today and the other one we're discussing tomorrow, there's two character traits which we are encouraged to go to the other extreme and obliterate, conquer completely. One of them is anger and the other one is arrogance. They, they really are twins. They're born together. They come together. We'll talk about that tomorrow probably. But right now, let's understand that what, what the Talmud is telling us is that anger never works unless... When you're showing anger, you are not angry. Then you can get away with it in specific circumstances. But I'm going to put that on the side for, for a moment. I'll just repeat that again. Anger never works. It never gets what you and I actually want, except when the anger is on the outside, and I don't feel it on the inside, there's a chance that the recipient of my display of anger will be able to receive the message without feeling hurt because I'm not feeling angry inside. There's an interesting verse in, in uh, King Solomon, Kamai Melpanim, just like water reflects the face, you smile, the water smiles back. Kain Adam so is the heart of one person to another, which means that you and I pick up the way other people feel. Some of us are more less sensitive, but essentially we're saying that if you feel deep appreciation towards another person, they'll probably pick up on it may not always be obvious, may not always, but they'll probably pick up on it, even if I'm not verbalizing it clearly. I will, we'll, we'll talk about that another time, but for now, let's understand, first of all, if it's required of us to go to the other extreme with anger, and we've got a whole lifetime to work on this, because the, the downside of anger is almost always negative, almost always, 
not just negative, but very destructive. Not physically alone, but emotionally, verbally, it's so destructive that we're told that even though this is a natural tendency within me, I have an obligation to train myself, rather like we talked about happiness as a choice, to train myself to choose not to be angry. Now this is not about a guilt trip because we have all been angry many times and I don't think for a moment, including myself, we're going to walk out of here today and never be angry again. But the Torah does require of us to commit to a career of conquering anger. Let me ask you a serious question. If you were in a relationship with someone that no matter how many times you let them down, if they were hurt, they communicated it without anger, what does it do for your relationship with that someone? You appreciate them on a different level. What else? You learn to trust them. When you come to take advantage of them? I might come to take advantage of them. Possibly. Possibly. I can communicate. I feel that I can be honest about myself. Even things which I'm not so proud about myself. Because if you're not going to get angry back about your expectations of me, you'll be accepting of me, then based on this track record, that whenever I open up to you, you're not, you don't get angry back, then I, I don't have to fear that I'm going to get my head chopped off or that you're going to penalize me or, or lay some sort of penalty, emotional, verbal, for not liking who I'm talking about. So I feel I can be honest and, and, and build trust that way and I appreciate you much more. Any others? Right. Could you give me an example? What, 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 right. If a person doesn't want to get angry so much, right. just getting angry. Right. I might want the other person to put some kind of lid on me. Right. I might not want them always to be accepting and. Uh, so I'm, I, I, so I, might, I might be testing them. Is that what you're saying? So I, I may need something else. I may need them to say that that is unacceptable and get angry with me. Not necessarily get angry with me. Say that's enough. Right. You can't talk to me that way or something like that. Okay. Okay. Isn't it an anger though? Obviously, channeled positively, an expression of one's maybe disappointment with someone else's behavior or expectation of better. Or something. What's called anger channeled positively? Well, I, I don't know how what the term for it is, but obviously, if you're not reacting at all when someone steps on you, if like not reacting angrily, then one would come to think that you could just keep on stepping on you. Okay, I'm not referring to that. I, I, I want to move away from the uh, dysfunctional anger where... No, I, mean, I, re I really do. I want to talk about the anger that uh, usually takes place when I don't like the way things are going, right? It may not be necessarily a complaint about you personally, but I'm talking about my anger in a relationship or my anger in, in an event, and you're responding with not inviting me to be as angry as, you, as I want about you, but instead of being angry back at me, you are listening, and if it is about you, and I'm angry about what you did, or what you said, or what I perceive as what you said or did about me, or to me, and you respond with, hmm, I had no idea that that's what really was going on in your mind. I had no idea that that's how it was taken by you. Or, I need to think this through, I didn't realize that I owe you such an apology. But what's going to happen? Am I going to say, I'm so glad you said that, because now I can get even more angry with you. No. <laughs> okay. Alright, so... We're talking about over here what happens when in place of anger a person chooses a very different response. What happens to me in my relationship to you? Okay, so I'll take two more points and then move on. You would 
um, let down any defenses that you have against that person if you had predicted that their response was going to be negative, then you might, you know, set up a false set of defenses that aren't necessarily can serve as a barrier between you and the person. It resists both of us from getting real about what our real concerns are because we're putting up these defenses, is that what you're saying? If you're angry, often, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, you see people say they argue all the time, you ask what they were fighting about, and right. often people can't remember. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good point. Yeah. Um, this is just, you know, examples of, like, when it's, when, like, I think anger is used positively, like, what we've been talking about is, like, um, anger in, I, in, I, in an ideal world, but there's also anger, like, positive, like, if you're in Lebanon, to get angry in order to be able to fight productively, or... If you're in a terrible situation, God forbid you're being attacked as a woman, you need to get angry in order to try and get out of the situation. And it's like I would actually say that possibly the opposite. I need to get in, in such acute control of my emotions so that they wouldn't in any way blur my judgment in a situation of life and death, such as war or, or being attacked. That's when I need to be most in control and act deliberately. Um, you will find people who are court-martialed in the, in the army are those who panic. They, put, they can be thrown into jail because they're not just putting their lives in danger. It, it, even in Halakha, I'm going to shock you, but even in Halakha, in Jewish law, when, when Jews go to war, if they start retreating, we used to have people at the back lines who, who uh, I'm not going to give you the details, but made sure that they wouldn't be bad examples to the rest of the army. Because they are putting the lives of others online. So, it, 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 in situations of actual life and death, that's when we need most control. And it's funny how, how suddenly we actually do harness total control of our, of our emotions in, the, in those moments. I'm not sure if it's called anger. I'm not sure if it's called anger. It's, uh, it may even be the opposite of anger, not in terms of patience, but in terms of absolute control. See, ang- anger we're taking right now is a perception of the things, I don't want it to be this way, I don't want you to be who you are, I would much rather you change, and when you change, then I can be happy, then I can be at peace in this relationship with you, and until you, until you change, I'm angry with you. So my, my anger is, starts with a perception of, this is not the way I want it, this is not the way I want you to be, this is not the way I want the event to be, this is not the way I want my life to be. My frustration, which is also a manifestation of anger, is part of the way I'm responding. The first place I want to accomplish right now is the following. Is anger a choice? Yes or no? Yes. If it's an event, then I can't control my anger. But if it really is my choice, then it means I can be responsible for my, for my response. I'll give you an example. If you know a particular person that uh, when they press a specific button, it really gets under your skin and you get very upset and possibly angry as well. If you were in a very funny arrangement whereby every time they provoked you and you totally controlled yourself, you would receive a thousand dollars. And it happens to be that on a daily basis they're usually at least ten times at your, underneath your skin. And you get the thousand dollars in cash within let's say sixty minutes, sixty seconds, right? Do you think it will take a lot of effort after seeing that this really works to control my anger? It's not, it's not going to... Do you see that anger is a choice, therefore? It's not fair. It doesn't feel like that. You know what? We're going to talk about why, why would I want to avoid admitting to myself that I can control my anger. Because anger does play a very important function. 
possibly, I'm skipping a few steps here, but possibly the greatest function of anger is that it stops me having to deal with the real issue. It kind of stops you right there. If you're going to continue like this, I'm going to get so angry, you're going to have so much pain, we're not going to have any communication, and you're not going to want to ever bring that up again. And if you do, I'm going to cut your head off. Not physically. I'm just going to make your life miserable, that's all. <laughs> Throw that in your head cut off, right? Not everyone. Do you see that it's possible that there may be different functions that, that deep down is a, is a positive benefit to my anger because I'm not ready to deal with the intimacy. Because if we get intimacy, which is a nice word in English, into me, see. Oh, I'm not sure I want you to see into me because if you see into me and I'm not sure I like what you're going to see and I'm not sure you're going to like what you see, then what I'm going to do, you see, is get angry. Because if I get angry and that stops the intimacy then I'm protecting myself from getting hurt. So I would prefer the pain of not communicating more than the level of anger with each other, which is a form of communication, rather than let's discuss this without anger and start opening up and being more real about each other, which happens when the other person doesn't penalize me for my honesty about who I am, especially in a marriage where it's very difficult to escape. I mean, it costs a lot of money and it's a lot of pain. <laughs> no, it really, it really is. I don't, thank God I don't speak from experience, but, but you know, statistics suggest that there's a lot of pain in divorce. And that marriage contract really does make the big difference. You know, Rabbi Victor Miller says that marriage is like standing in front of a mirror with a magnifying glass in between. <laughs> See, if, if I can reach a point in my communication with you that we have an agreement that somehow we control ourselves when it comes to differences. Then, without anger, is it possible that you and I are going to start to see more into each other, be more open about our weaknesses, feel more accepted, therefore feel more able to be honest on all different areas of our lives, and thereby actually share each other's insights and become much more real to ourselves? The, but, yeah. But anger gets in the way, sometimes it's functional because it's my subconscious way perhaps of saying I personally don't want you to see what's inside of me and also, I may, maybe I don't mind you seeing what's inside of me but I cannot stand this about you and when it comes to finances about you or when it comes to this thing about tidiness or this thing about you being my roommate or this thing about you listening to my phone calls or you listening about you, the way you bring up the kids it gets me so I would much rather not have to get into the discussion. So my way of not getting into discussion is I get very angry very quickly and that stops us from being able to communicate beyond that. So we have to recognize that, that we choose anger as a protection to avoid being real. Because maybe I'm not ready, I don't have that maturity yet, or maybe I'm not proud of what, and therefore we're about... I'm going to hurt you, you're going to hurt me. Let me, let me move on. I, I, it's very important for you to have a question. I feel bad yesterday. I hope the question is back a bit. But uh, I, I want to cover a little bit more ground and, and I'm sure there will be more points that will come out of this. There's another function to anger and that is I'm in fear that if I control my anger what's your expectation going to be of me? Is it going to be the same or is it going to change? What are you going to hold me to? A higher standard. What happens if I feel emotionally not ready for that? I'm not, ah, I, don't, I don't want to be ready for that. I'd rather not deal with that yet. Do you see how anger can help me stopping having, stop having to reach a point where I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard? Because which is greater? 
you help me to higher standards or me help me to higher standards? Which is, which is the, the better, more desirable? I've got, it's better that I get motivated by me rather than by motivated by you. Because if, if I rely on you too much and your motivation for me to change is more than what I'm ready for, is it possible you'll get frustrated <laughs> with me not changing faster than your expectation? Am I m- making myself clear here? So my anger therefore becomes a way to stop me having to deal with the fear of me being in control of my anger, because if I get to be in control, I'll hold myself to a higher expectation in my relationships, in the workplace, with the children, with the spouse, and you, seeing me, a person who controls the anger, will expect me, accordingly, to respond differently, without anger. And I don't want to disappoint you, and I want you to find out that I'm not sure I can hold that consistently. So, there, there are real Issues about why anger works and why it also holds us back from moving forward in what you and I were really created for. And this is a point I want to make very clearly. God said at the very beginning of Genesis, fortunately made things very clear right at the beginning, that He created us Elohim in God's image. What does it mean in Hashem's image? Because God doesn't have an image. Not a physical image. God is righteous and he created us as a reflection of his righteousness, which means that the neshama, the soul he breathed into us, which is our true identity, it's the only identity that actually is everlasting, the soul that's breathed into us is actually a reflection of Hashem. This is a very important point to note, I'll explain why. A lot of my, my work with children, I work with kids and parents in, um, who have emotional problems, children with what's called emotional deficits, what I try to help the parents identify is what their real perception of their kid is because the kid is often playing to the, that expectation, and help the child learn that by taking control of their emotion, they get to feel very powerful about themselves. Let me explain this. In the secular world, there is a very big confusion about self-image and self-confidence. For the most part, the books that I've read at any rate, self-confidence apparently feeds into self-image. And you know something? If you look at the two, it sounds right. That the more competent I am, the better I, the more capable I am, if I know karate, I feel better about my body and defending myself. If, if, I, um, if I'm good in the corporate world and I'm, I'm getting a higher raise in salary and I learn a new skill or a new language, surely that affects myself and I feel better about myself. Surely that is true. Now, I'm not about to say it's absolute nonsense, but I'll tell you where the unbelievable flaw is. The unbelievable flaw in this is the following. What happens if our self-image where we truly judge ourselves deeply on a soul level, on a God level, is not dependent on ability. Self-confidence is a reflection of ability. Is it possible that I could be very in control of my body, diet, exercise? Is it possible that I could be very much in control in the workplace, that I'm doing very well, I've got good management skills with the people around me, and I'm, I'm uh, held in high esteem for the corporate position I hold in the business? And yet I have low self-esteem. Is that possible? Is it possible that someone like Rita Garbo, some of you still maybe remember, would commit suicide and yet she'd be the most adored and admired actress on the face of the earth? Is it possible that for all my talents I might not be happy? What could possibly be the reason? Because you and I looking at that person would say, wow, if I had their talents, if I had their fame, if I had their recognition in the corporate world, in the social and the financial world, I would feel very good about myself. I'd have a very strong self-image. Is that really certain? Is it possible that I know deep down 
that God created us to become righteous people. And righteous because that's our soul as a reflection of God. But Salem Elohim, we were created in the image of Hashem, means that when we control our emotions and we take control of our lives on the emotional level, anger, and we replace it with patience, with a soft voice, softly spoken outwardly and inwardly, as we practice and train, and there's plenty of opportunities every day for adversity and irritation in the workplace, at home, with the parents, with the children, with the spouse, God invented those three areas, marriage, children, and earning a living, because these are three major places where we practice the muscles of patience, of looking for another meaning in adversity, in being interpreting your behavior differently than I have till now. Exercising these choices helps us to become more righteous. And when we act righteously, when we respond without anger, and believe you, me, I really want to be angry with you right now, but I find a way to control it, how do you feel about yourself? And I'm sure there are people in this room, if not every single one of you, that can pinpoint times in your lives that you feel extremely proud about yourself, that you conquered something inside very deeply when you could have let yourself go. I want to share with you a very interesting thing that happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was at a, a one-day seminar and there was a speaker there who was amazingly charismatic. And there were, there were three workshops in the afternoon after he had spoken. And everyone wanted to hear him again. And the guy felt this and he went up to the, the person in charge of the program. And I was talking to the, the, the person who was run, running the program. And the lecturer said, you know what, I feel a little bit uncomfortable. The other speakers that are coming to the workshops... They haven't spoken yet, and so they're not known. And, and I've just spoken. Uh, and if you're going to announce the workshops and the, the speakers, what happens if everyone wants, or most people want to go to, to mine and not to theirs? So the guy who runs the program turned to me and said, he's, he's got a point, what should we do? It's going to be an unbalance. And so I, I don't know. And then the speaker himself said, well, how about announcing the workshop, but don't tell them who's speaking? And then people go to the workshop they want to, and then the speakers will turn up after the workshops are I went up to the speaker afterwards and I asked him, I asked him, I want to ask you a really honest question about you personally. Do you mind? When you got all that feedback from people who were saying how much they felt affected by your presentation and the words you said, did you feel better about the positive feedback you got from others than having put the dignity of another human being, who's not unknown to you, at least on par with yours, so that he shouldn't be shamed? because very few people turn up to his workshop and more to others. And he says, it's an interesting question. And I, f- I felt better about, about giving way for another person. See, the Gemara tells us something very interesting. You and I could be motivated by a hundred whiplashes. Now, I don't think there's anyone in this room who's ever been whipped a hundred times, verbally or emotionally. But if you know someone who has, I don't know, I'm being funny. I've been to, you've been to. If you know... Let me ask you honestly, were you motivated from within or from without? Says the Gemara, 100 whiplashes is never equivalent even to one personal change. One personal change is a greater accomplishment than 100 that goes further than that. You could have someone who's making a massive contribution to the world, changing people's lives. Wouldn't you say that should affect their self-image? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. And, and they're getting letters... And people are saying, this is what you did for me. I've got to tell you, ever since uh, you worked um, on, on this thing with me, 
I'm another person. Isn't it clear that that should affect their self-image? And says the Talmud the following, when the person himself, who may be contributing and changing lives of hundreds or thousands of people, makes a change inside himself, herself, it's a great accomplishment. And there's a powerful logic why that's so. Because when another person is affected, influenced, by information, or by inspiration, they're the ones who have to change themselves. Yes, they'll give credit to this person over here, this therapist, this teacher, whoever it is. You, mom, you, dad, you changed my life. You, uncle, you, teacher, you changed my life. But who had to change their lives? They took the information, they changed their lives. They exercised their own free will in changing their lives. They had to take action. But when the, the person who's making the contribution changes his life, he exercises his personal free will. He doesn't own the other person's free will. He helped the other person give them the information. He was the mailman for that information. Maybe they did a great presentation. But at the end of the day, when a person changes themselves inside, that's greater than even changing or assisting in changing thousands of other people. Because changing other people is their free will. It doesn't touch your self-image. But when you change your own self-image, because we're acting righteously as a reflection of Hashem, we're making a real change in our side ourselves. We own that. No one else did that for us. No one else can do that for us. Of all the negative traits that we could work on, this particular one, and, and arrogance, but anger, this particular one is the one trait that has the most and worst negative downside, as we listed right at the beginning, and has the, when we're in control and we become consistent at it, has the greatest plus benefits. First base is believing I can eventually reach a point in my life, not today, not tomorrow, not a week, not a month, not even a year, maybe a decade or more, but I can reach a point in my life where I'm consistently controlling my anger. Listen very carefully. If we don't believe it, then how much effort will we be willing to invest to make it happen? But let me ask you honestly, as a mother, as a spouse, as a grandmother, as an aunt in the workplace, if it took from today for another 10 years, up and down, up and down, controlling anger, falling, not controlling anger, up, down, up, down, but slowly, slowly, persevering, never giving up, until one is consistently in control, there may be one or two slides, but basically we become very, very happy inside of ourselves for being in control of that emotion. What will it do in our lives to the people who are in our lives? What will it do for our children? What will it do for our spouse? What will it do for those who have to work with us? When they see, wow, what gets this person angry? I mean, so many silly little irritations, but I don't see this person getting upset. I'm not talking about a miracle over here. We're not talking about being tzaddikim overnight. When God sent our souls down here, He said, I'm making an oath with you. Two words. What were the two words? Tia tzaddik. Become righteous. Because that's our true identity. Reflect God, says Hashem. Be righteous. Become righteous. Rasha. Don't be wicked. Controlling anger puts us in contact with our real identity. That's who I really want to be. That's who I'm really committed to becoming. And that's why, even though growing in the workplace, making contribution in the world, 
uh, earning a great living, having a, a beautiful material surroundings, all these are true accomplishments and beneficial and functional and needed. But ultimately, if I want to measure my truest, deepest self-esteem, it's not dependent on how many differences or similarities there are in my marriage, how better or worse my kids are than someone else's. My truest self-esteem is about who I am righteously when it comes to responding with anger or with patience, putting someone down or showing appreciation, being grateful, being forgiving when it's perhaps not even deserving, being compassionate in place of anger can turn the other person around. We're not talking right now about being abused and giving out invitations for being abused. On the contrary, we're talking about being in control of the emotion so that if the other person starts to take advantage, I will perhaps try and help them in a healthy, assertive way, understand that they're hurting themselves very much in the way they're dealing with me because ultimately you and I won't be able to have a relationship if you feel that the only way you can communicate is by speaking with this choice of words. Because you're hurting you, you're hurting me. We're talking about functional anger and understanding that it gets in the way of honesty with being in touch with my real self. On the plus side, what level of shalom will there be in our lives? Let's say ten years from now, not tomorrow, not a week from now, in learning to respond without anger. What level of shalom will we have with the relationships that count the most in our lives, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we have children, whether we're grandparents, whether we're not yet grandparents, whether we're not yet married. What will it do to the shalom in ourselves, to the shalom in other people's lives, as we become more and more in control of anger? What will it do to other people's confidence in opening up to us, or feeling they can trust us, or feeling that we can empathize for them? Do you see that the qualities that come out of controlling anger are the very values, the very pieces about the psyche and the personality that God program, programmed us with that we crave for. We crave for being in control of our emotions. What will happen to our inner happiness as we gradually, again, it doesn't have to be tomorrow, a perseverance, total commitment, I don't care how many times I fall, I'm going to get up and say, anger is something I'm out to conquer. And we continue not letting go. And loving ourselves even when we fall into anger again, and again, and again. But remembering that as I take more control, and do you know what will happen? Hashem will send us the opportunities that when we do experience control of anger on a deep level, and I'm sure we each have had an experience like that, May not be many of them, but where we did experience it, we felt an amazing peace, tranquility, serenity within us, even if all hell was let loose around us. Does that conquering make it worthwhile a 10-year plan? I'll ask it differently. Some of us in the room are 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, maybe even more mature. (laughs) Even more mature. Even more experiences to call upon. Let me ask you a serious question. If we're going to live to 120, and it takes us 110 years to conquer anger so that we become totally consistent, that's maybe an unfair number, let's, let's say we're going to die at 85, 90, and it took till 70 years old 
to totally conquer anger. And from then on, we were consistently at peace with ourselves, no matter how big a difference of who and what was going on around us and in our lives. Would it be worth those last ten years in our relationships with our children and our grandchildren, the memories we're going to leave behind in those last ten years, would it be worth the 60, 70 years of breaking the anger? You hear the answer? Hear the answer clear in your mind. It's worth it. Well, well, well worth it. Immeasurably worth it. If we hold ourselves to the standard, I've got to be a tzaddik now, I've got to be a tzidkanias tomorrow, that's not fair. It takes a long time. We have an expression in, in Psalms. Uh, King David says, Tzadik katamar yifrach. A tzadik grows like a date tree. Now if ever you went and put a date seed in the ground and watched it grow, it takes a long time. Tzadik katamar yifrach. It takes a long time to become a tzadik. At least two weeks. <laughs> there are no crash courses. There are more crashes than courses. <laughs> Says the Harvard report on millionaires, multi-millionaires, the vast, vast majority of them, only got there because they failed the most times in business. Hear it clearly. Multi-millionaires made it big time in their money because they failed the most times in business. Athletes in the Olympics get the gold medal for having made the most mistakes and not given up. Gene Tunney, I don't know if you ever remember him, ladies probably didn't watch too much boxing, but I remember in the old days, Gene Tunney was the, the world, world heavyweight boxer, and this is a person who broke both hands, both, all the knuckles in both hands, and was told to never be able to fight again, and he came back and won the world heavyweight undefeated champion, and the answer is, once we set the goal, that we're here to become righteous, Tiyat Sadiq, we were charged with that mission. Even if we fall a hundred times a single day, does that mean I should give up? What does that mean? I, I mustn't persevere anymore? So I hurt you today. That means I can't apologize and, and let's, let's heal and let's start again. Perseverance is the ingredient we just want. We want commitment and perseverance. We need to believe that it's possible. And the benefits, even if we don't get all the way there, 80% there, the benefits are so powerful, it will change ourselves, and therefore the way people who don't like us, or we are not in rapport with, it will change the way they respond to us, because I'm not the same person anymore. Who you and I become is far more the real issue in this world, than how we can decrease the differences between us. Because guess what? When you're in a marriage, and you're in a relationship, have you heard that the longer you're married, and the better the marriage, the less differences there are? Okay? Is that a guarantee? It's not necessarily the case. What's really going to make the marriage? Yes, to have less differences, absolutely. But, what's going to make the real marriage, for most of us? Less differences, or being able to manage differences in a way that we don't hurt each other emotionally? that we deal with it respectfully. What's going to make the real difference? How many differences or how we respond to the differences? What's going to make the real difference? How cooperative my children are or how I respond to their lack of cooperation? What's going to make the difference in the workplace? How abusive this boss and the co-workers are 
or how strong I learn to be in myself so that I'm no longer a 67 Chevy, I'm a Rolls Royce. Rolls Royces cannot be spoken to like that. Rolls Royces don't get pushed around like that. You cannot feed me that type of language because I need super duper unleaded diesel fuel. You can't just give me any junk. God calls himself Erech translation Af is a nostril, a pie my nostrils. Erech means long. Erech a pie is long nostrils. What does it mean to have long nostrils? I mean, this kind of doesn't sound very complimentary. But actually, what it means is like this. When you hold in your anger on the outside, does it look something like this? <laughs> Erech a is an expression of holding in my anger. There's two levels here. One is Yidayim Yishtaik. Second level Yishtaik. That means to be silent on the outside and eventually to conquer the anger on the inside, to be silent on the inside. God is Erechapayim, which is a description that he's both on the outside and the inside. God is long-suffering, as one of the descriptions, very patient with you and I. How patient is very patient? This is called Gevura. Gevura means power, strength. God is called Gevura because of this trait, Erechapayim, patience. What does that mean? If you were living in a home with a husband or a wife who ignored you every day, never recognizes your existence, finds the food on the table three times a day, doesn't show any appreciation, walks out the door not saying hello, goodbye, or how are you, what level of communication is that? How long would you last in such a relationship? God is called long patient because in his very palace there are people walking around ignoring that he's the king getting meals every single day paychecks every single day and they don't want to admit that this paycheck really comes from the king they will even when interviewed what do you think about the king? I don't believe he even exists (laughs) or if he does I don't think it's fair because I've got friends in the palace who are walking around with a much nicer paycheck than I am, better terms and conditions, so I personally don't like the king. I don't think he's fair. And meanwhile, the king is standing there listening to all this, while I'm spitting on the floor right in front of him, or even in his face. And God says, I am patient with you. Why would God be patient if I'm not showing appreciation? And God's answer is, I don't make no junk. God don't make no junk. He knows that the real essence of the human being is that we crave to become righteous. There are a lot of distractions that get in the way. Faulty parenting, education, the media, environment, newspapers, magazines, pull us away from reminding ourselves what we're really here for. So says Hashem, my confidence in what I built is so strong that I know this person has the intelligence and the emotion like you to one day turn around and ask themselves the big question what am I here for is this really what am I accomplishing where am I going where do I feel strong about myself how can I make the greatest possible contribution to myself and to others and then discover that righteousness is what we were planted in this world for so says God I'm willing to be patient till the last second because right up until the last second a person has a chance to say you know something I wish I did my life differently and Hashem counts that isn't that amazing in the last moment we actually, now don't do it. <laughs> if you know anyone, tell them don't do it. Right? They'll say, well, I still get done and I still get upstairs. Yeah, but they'll get the smoking section. It's not so good up there. <laughs> but 
but the point is, the point is, we're here for righteousness. The sooner we realize it, the better. And we don't have to think that I've got to become that great spouse, that great mother, today, tomorrow. I wish it happened already yesterday. Hashem gives us a lifetime. Now, of course, we should try and get it there as soon as possible. But we've always got a second chance, no matter how many mistakes we've made till now. No matter how far gone our relationships are, there's always an opportunity for healing. Grandchildren, wow, what a great second chance to get through to your own kids. <laughs> You'd be surprised how much your, your daughter and your son will need you when they want to go away. And you'd be surprised how much leverage you start to get. And how, how much influence you can have on that child. How many people have been inspired by their grandparents to become what they became and do what they did and give what they gave. It's never too late. We're here to become stronger in our emotional strength through controlling our anger. Says the mission in Pirkei Avos, chapter 4, mission number 1, Ezehu Gibor, the same mission that talked about happiness. Interesting. Ezehu Gibor, who is the mighty one, who is the strongest person, the most powerful person? What was the answer? No, not Charles Atlas. Right, the one who controls his own weaknesses not someone else's weaknesses so he can be president of America and not be as powerful as the person who controls himself in fact what is the verse that's quoted Toib Erechapayim greater is the person who is patient than someone who sets siege on a city and conquers a city isn't that interesting what an interesting verse to quote from King Solomon greater is the power of patience which is an internal job, than having the artillery and the army under your authority and power to surround and siege a city and conquer it and take all its spoils. In fact, the Medrash on this Mishnah says that there was once a king who came back from conquering a city and he arrived to his home town where his palace was and right at the gate was the wise man of the city his wisest and closest advisor and minister. And everyone else is jubilantly throwing their hats up in the air, screaming, Mazel Tov, wonderful, the king conquered another land, more spoils, this is great, we're expanding our territory, improving our security. And the wise man is sitting at the gate, showing no sign of jubilation, no sign of celebration. And of course the king knows, hey, this is the wise man, every expression has meaning, it counts. He's bothered. Why aren't you evidently celebrating the same passion everyone else? And he said, You just won a small victory. The real battle just began. What are you talking about? How are you going to treat the people you just conquered? How are you going to share the spoils? How much of it is going into your private vaults? And how much of it is going to be distributed amongst those who need it? Those are battles that you have to fight about yourself. But because you had a bigger army and more arms and better strategy and a better general, therefore that's a better battle. All the battles out there depend on too many other variables for us to take the credit. But when we conquer something inside of ourselves, we won. That's a real victory. Because no one else can do that for me. If I don't get angry when I could, and I show patience to that kid and give him another chance, that's when I conquer myself as a parent, as a spouse, as a grandparent in the workplace.
with the client, with the co-worker, with the neighbor, with the mother-in-law, with the father-in-law. God is not interested in how much more or less suffering you and I have. It's what we do with it. It's not easy. It's not easy. That doesn't make it easy. It doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't make it easy being single or being divorced or being married and not enjoying the marriage or having kids and which I don't know. This is what people want to be pregnant for. It's not easy. No one said it's easy. But where you and I get the deepest sense of meaning, of accomplishment, of justifying our existence, is when we conquer ourselves. And that is not dependent on circumstances. How do we conquer ourselves? Okay, first of all, believe it's possible. Because if I don't believe it's possible, what am I going to do? I'm going to sabotage my own efforts. Yeah? So number one, I have to believe it's possible. Number two, don't give up. Don't ever give up. And part of giving up means don't forget the goal. Don't forget the goal that it's not about the boss, that it's not about the spouse, it's not about the kids, it's not about being single, it's not about being married, it's not about being divorced, it's not about having abusive bosses, it's not about that mother-in-law, and it's not about those kids, and it's not about the teachers, and it's not about the weather. <laughs> it's about me and my choices, which ones are going to make me proud. That puts power back in our hands. Because if it is about you, outside of you, if it's about you being nice to me, you recognizing, appreciating me, then I'm left dependent on you appreciating. And if you're angry with me, I'm devastated. But what happens if your anger doesn't have to be about me? And that's number three. Number three, I have to ask a question that's going to shift me from the perception that feeds anger. What's the perception that feeds anger? That this is a negative and it's about hurting me. I'm not talking just about your intent in hurting me, but that's either your intent or that's what's coming out of this. That's what feeds into anger. A negative perception. Question. Listen to the question. You can write it down if you want. Listen to this question. It's a very powerful question because it can turn around my negative perception in one question. Do I have, in response to this event or this relationship that I'm, I'm ready to get angry about, do I have all the information that I need to be absolutely certain that my perception of you or the event is totally accurate? Do I have all the information I need to be absolutely certain that my perception of you, a negative perception of you, or the event that I want to respond to, I'm about to choose how to respond to, do I have all the information I need to be absolutely certain that my perception of you is totally accurate? How many answers are there to that question? <laughs> Seriously, how many answers are there to that question? If we're human, there's only one answer. We never have all the information. <coughs> we never have. We might think we're right. We really might be certain we're right. But can we really, really know? Can we really, really know? How many times has it happened that you kind of not like a certain person, a roommate or a friend, or even someone in the workplace, and then you met the mother? Oh my gosh, she has the same twitch. <laughs> oh my gosh, she looks at me the same way. It's not about me. Oh my gosh, she has that same accusing facial expression. Or that same sharpness in, in, in the voice. Or that same coldness in the welcome or the, the farewell. It's not about me. You ever had that experience? Do I have all the information I need to know to be absolutely certain 
that my perception of you is completely angular. Is it possible that if you spent 10 minutes telling me about the greatest pain in your life, that would create a totally different level of compassion and might even turn around my anger into, boy, can I help you? How can I perhaps do something for you? Do you hear the difference? Is that possible? Is it possible that there are people close to us in our lives? And this I sometimes do with parents with very powerful results. How much more qualified can you get than a parent to know their child? Who else would you expect to know the child better? But is it possible that a parent might be locked into a perception of my child based on a lot on unacceptable behavior and language that gets me so... <laughs> every time I swore that I see that child or every time I want to communicate and it just gets into a conflict that I can't stand this kid and it's my kid and I feel guilty about it too. And I'm also upset about that. Is it possible that understanding perhaps a learning disability, or understanding where they're getting hurt at home, or in the school, or by the teacher, might help me open up a different piece of compassion inside of me, and start working with the kid at a different level. Even those closest to us. But the best place to start is me. Find compassion for me. Give myself the credit for trying. Give myself the credit for wanting the right thing. Give myself the credit for not letting go for being a fighter and for telling myself I've had it hard I had a hard childhood I've still got it difficult with my parents and it's not so great with my health either and you know what my finances aren't so great either but I've got two ways to look at my life I'll explain in Hebrew how many ways can you say why? Madua Lama why do we have two words for the same parent meaning? It has to be the Lashon HaKadosh, God's tongue, it must mean that each one of these two terms does not equal the same. Otherwise you wouldn't need two for the same. There's an amazing distinction between the two. Madua, translates as why, actually sends me into why, how did this come to be this way? Analyze the past and how it brought me to where I am now. Let's figure out how the plane crashed. Let's figure out all the details about that terrible 120 miles per hour crash in that tunnel in France. And let's fi- figure out all the details. Somehow a fascination with the details about the past helps me to accept the present. But doesn't necessarily push me forward. Madua throws me into the past, into an analysis. I could spend many years therapeutically working this out. I think I showed you this one. How many, life, how many therapists does it take to change the light bulb? Remember that one? How many therapists it takes to change a light bulb? It takes one therapist, takes a long time, and the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> There's two whys in Hebrew. Madua sends me into the past, I've got to figure out, analyze, how did I get to be this way? If I understand what it was about my mother, my father, the interaction, that's why I'm who I am, that's why I'm interacting this way, and I'm, bound, and I'm bound to it because I was in diaper seven years ago. <laughs> I could figure out all that and spend a long time trying to figure it out and come up with much more confusion, I mean clarity. Or, there's another why. I know I sound a little bit unfair, but there's another why. Lama is two words. Lama. To what purpose is this sending me to? To what end? To what justification? Where is this taking me to? Do you see that there's two separate whys, and depending which one I train myself to ask, I can either send my back, myself back into my father, my mother, both of them. It's my uncle. It's my school. It's my environment. Right? I can figure out all sorts of things that brought me to where I That's why I am. And I'm not saying that's, don't do it. 
but there's got to be a point where I ask a functional why, which sends me into how can I move from here? What's good about this? What is the hidden blessing, if there is in that assumption? What is this preparing me for? Where am I going with this? If I conquer this, what will it mean in my life? Sarah Imenu, our first matriarch. If you were to ask her, Sarah, we're interviewing you, it's 127 years. You had a long life. Tell us, Sarah, in one sentence, how would you describe your life? What do you think she's going to tell us? Well, based on what we already know about her life, she was barren 90 years. She was kidnapped twice. Her husband went through 10 trials, and she went through them as well. I mean, when he was thrown in the furnace, she wasn't baking pizza saying, See, Abe! <laughs> she was having going through hell too. And she even took on a co-wife. How many ladies in this room would be willing to share a husband with another... I mean, she went through a hard time, and then when she had Yishmael through Hagar, she went to hell with him too. She had to throw Hagar out the house. Did she have an easy life? She went through famine, kidnappings, right? So what do you think is going to be her perspective on her life? So in Chaf Gimel, in chapter 23 in, in Genesis, starts off the Torah, right there. This is the life of Sarah. These are the, these are the days of Sarah. And what is the actual wording? This is the life of Sarah. 100 years, 20 years, 7 years. These are the years of Sarah. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said these are the years of Sarah, 100 years, 20 years, 7 years. These are the years of Sarah. Why are you saying these are the years of Sarah again? What does Rashi say? To tell us, and this quoting from the Gemara, her whole life was equally good. How do you say that? Are you into denial or what? Kidnapped twice, barren, 90 years, took on a co-wife, lived through famine, husband goes through in a furnace. What are you talking about? You had a great life? So what's, on, what's, what's the answer that clarifies that this is not a contradiction? See, it's not how much suffering or how much adversity that you and I go through that's going to determine our ultimate happiness. It's the meaning in our lives in those events. Who controls the meaning? The event or our choice of perception? See, if it's the event, you and I just get thrown around in this fate, luck, world of muzzle. But if we choose... Terry's saying that when, when we make choices, we actually create a change in ourselves. What are you saying exactly? Then I need to ask myself, what's this leading to? If I stay in this situation, where will I be ten years from now? What changes would I need to make to be where I really want to be? So I've got to ask Lama intelligently, which means, to what is this leading? If it's not leading me to where I really want to go, or if it's, if it's even telling me, hey, I don't even realize where I'm going, then, then that Lama can help me to identify, if this is not where I want to be, where do I want to be? Or if I already know where I want to be, and I can ask Lama, for what, to what? Is this leading? I can start to ask myself, is this supporting me? Is it, is it a stepping stone? Is, it, is this relationship, which is really hurting, is it giving me a different level of maturity? Do I now know what I can accept and what I can't accept? Is that what the point you're, you're coming up with? Absolutely. And in the variables that God created, the direction a person wants to go in, this is taken from the Talmud in Makkah, page 10, the direction a person wants to go in, they accompany him. Who's they? And the answer the Marashah gives over there, in many places the same explanation is given. You and I create vibes. 
forces. In Hebrew, called Malachim. English, English translation is angels. You and I create forces with everything we think and say and act and do and behave. Everything we do creates forces. There's scientific evidence for this. Stay with it. If you're, not, if you're familiar with pheromones, experimentation done on, on, on uh, mice in a, in a room where there's squares, black and white squares like a chessboard, and the black squares are, have electric current underneath, and the mice are jumping up and down, they learn to only go on the white squares. And then when the mice are taken out of the room, and they cut the electric current, and they put new mice in, the new mice start jumping up and down of the black squares, because there are hormones in the body which are released, called pheromones, that when we are in fear, those pheromones come out of the body into the atmosphere. Have you noticed you and I go into a room and we sense the tension, or sense the serenity. There is such a thing as vibes. Now, I'm not going to get into that right now, but the point we're making right now is, you and I create forces, and when we choose to go in a negative or in a positive, those forces are created by ourselves. The malachim, we create the angels, which are accompanying us in a specific direction. If you have ever noticed that you decided, I'm going to make a commitment to a certain thing, and suddenly, a person pops up in your life, meets you in a party, get a book in the mail, see her cassette, wow, I can't believe it, that's what I was just... Um, talking about. That's what I want to get into. Hey, I'm meeting someone in a position that can really give me help. This is a great connection. Malichinoisai means that when we commit to a specific direction, we get help. That's what habits are. We create our own habits. Another cookie, another cookie. There's a lot of angels out there. <laughs> right? We break the habit. We've got to go in the other direction. It's not always easy to break the momentum. But it's real, which means the more we try, the more help we will eventually get. It's a guarantee that conquering anger is a arrival. Happiness is a reality. It's a choice, it's an accumulation of choices. Peace of mind, serenity, conquering anger, these are accumulated choices which eventually lead to more and more consistency in our lives. Being someone in control of anger is not a high madrega. It's a habit. It's a training. You see, if it's a high madrega, it's a high level, a very, very great accomplishment, which it is, but if it's only for very, very special people, geniuses in Torah and mitzvahs and, and, and righteousness, then where does that leave us? But if it's a habit, if it's an accumulation of choices, wait a minute, I can also make choices. I can make accumulative choices. So comes along Sarah and tells us, here is a woman who went through adversity, and her focus was... Who am I affecting in my life? How am I responding to my adversity? Who are the women that I'm bringing into? Judaism. So that what was a central theme of her life was not about how many years she wasn't pregnant. It wasn't about even the children turning out right. Isn't that amazing? It's about who I am becoming. How I am responding. Because if I take care of that, then the people who are in my life the events that are in my life will get taken care of because all the events and people in my life only count as far as the meaning I give those people and events. I control that meaning. But if I give the meaning over to something outside of me, we're out of control. And we may not even take responsibility for being in control. So we said, don't give up. Don't give up what? Practicing patience. Now you don't have to worry about going for a workout. Because, if you're married, if you've got children, I don't have to say another word, if you are single, got your own adversity. If 
you're a grandparent, you've got your own concerns. If you're a boss, you've got your own concerns. But you've got so many places, wherever you are, where every single day, one or another, irritation or adversity or challenge or difficulty or relationship or someone upset with you, will give me the practice I need to exercise my patience. And I will get a lot of exercises. Because God said, you know what, it's worth coming down to this world to get it right even once. Even if I leave this world with one time conquering myself, and I didn't all the others, it's still worth it. Do you know that? Does that sound like an exaggeration? There's a powerful logic, the powerful logic why that's factual. I'll explain. Which is worse? Which is more severe? A violation against God? Or missing the opportunity to do a mitzvah? Which is more severe? A violation against God? Speaking Lashon Hara, hurting another person? Not keeping Shabbos? Which is greater? Which is more severe? A violation against Hashem? Or missing the opportunity for a mitzvah? You know, they always say, whenever you speak to a Jewish audience, you have to phrase your questions so that they can never answer more than three options. (laughs) (laughs) And that nails it down to four answers. Okay, so now, question one more time. Which is more severe? And a violation or missing a mitzvah? Why is violation uh, worse? Because it's... the violation is going against his will. Whereas the mitzvah is doing something nice, but if you if can't you do, it, do it, then you, it's not meant for you to do. You'll come upon another one that is meant for you to do. Alright, one possibility. Okay, interesting. Doing a very good also lead to it. Yeah? How do you do something negative and detract from what you work for? Right. Worse, but if you're not doing anything, then at least you're... At least you're stagnant. Okay. I'm going to open up the dimension over here, and we're going to play the following rules. If this is the only world, then I think the answers make uh, each one of your answers rationally sound. However, if this is not the real dimension, and we're practicing here for rehearsal in a different dimension, then it comes out this way. The worst consequences of a violation is that we will go to Gehenna for 12 months. Maximum. It takes about 12 months to take out the worst stains from our soul. So horribly, they're very strong chemicals, right? They were spiritual chemicals, don't worry. <laughs> but after 12 months there's eternity eternity which see you and I get up there depends on what we did down here missing out on a mitzvah is missing out on if we can say it in these terms a piece of eternity doing something wrong the worst consequence the worst worst that I die without doing any correction whatsoever don't change myself at all I die with that terrible crime in my hand the worst that could ever happen is 12 months and then cleaned out, goes straight upstairs. Missing the opportunity to do something right has far immeasurably greater consequences. The point being this, it's worth it to come down here to get it right once. Do you hear that? Even to believe in God, now I don't suggest that just leave it at that and don't practice his mitzvahs, but even to get it that far was still worthwhile than not to have believed. Of course, if we do more than that, we practice His will even greater. Now, I'm going to end off, the, not end off, I've got 10 more minutes. I'm sorry I didn't give you a break, but at least, at least I'm consistent. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to give myself credit for it, right? So now, I want to share with you something very powerful. The Talmud tells us that being angry is equivalent to idol worship. Now, um, this is not about a guilt trip, let me explain. Idol worship is where I give attribute of power to something outside of God. Anger is where I say, God, you can't be here because if you'd be doing it the way I think you should, then 
this wouldn't be happening to me. So anger in a certain sense is a denial of your existence or your presence in this situation. That is a very heavy statement to make because serving idols is one of the three worst crimes. I'm allowed to break every mitzvah. I can do every avera in the Torah. Every violation in the Torah. I can break the Sabbath but I must not break these three. Idol worship, murder and adultery. And now, now we're being told that anger is the same as idol worship. But let's look carefully, as negative and as guilt trip as it sounds, there's a very powerful positive in this. Because what it means is the following. What is the upside? Is there anyone in this room who was coerced into um, kissing or hugging or giving a sacrifice to a, a, an idol? No, no, don't put your hand up if you did, but... The point is this. How many times were you coerced or out of your own volition went and hugged and kissed an idol and said, Oh, you beautiful God, I love you. Thank you so much for the weather today. Everything's going fine. Thank you, Hunky Dory. Here's uh, an apple. Here's, a, here's an apple strudel. Here's a pastry just for you. Right? Now, but you do know that if I really meant it, if I did that, I would be in an amazing violation. I would be equivalent to destroying the entire Torah. I'd be in violation of every single crime in the Torah. I'm denying God's existence and giving all to this, this piece of stone or, or wood. What happens if I be coerced on a daily basis and I absolutely hold myself back? No, I'm not worshipping an idol. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not worshipping that idol. Every time a person is under pressure or tempted to worship an idol and holds himself back and doesn't, it's equivalent to having kept, fulfilled every single one of the 613 mitzvahs. Isn't that amazing? What would happen if someone would feel tempted to get angry a few times a day and held themselves back. It's equivalent to keeping the entire Torah many times over every single day. What happens if a person becomes a role model for helping other people take control of their anger in addition to themselves taking control of their anger? Do you see how powerful this is on the upside? So, we have everything to gain and we have a lot to hurt ourselves. But when we make the commitment, we persevere and we say, I'm never letting go. And don't worry about having to work out. The exercise is always there. Just keep on practicing. And don't worry about falling. That's not what it's about. It doesn't make a difference how many times I fall. The difference is, did I get out the last time? That's all that counts. The greatest businessmen are the ones who failed the most times. Everyone in sports got their gold medal in the Olympics because they tried the hardest. The Fum Sara Agra, according to our effort, is the reward. Not just the reward upstairs. Who we become is the reward already here. And how others are affected by who we become. And when we become stronger in ourselves, do we become more valuable for a relationship if we're not yet married? Do we become more valuable in the relationships that we already have? What are the memories we're giving to our children? To those closest to us? What are we doing to our true self-esteem by acting righteously? I'm going to share with you the one most powerful strategy which is used for breaking anger. Soft, gentle speech. Don't underestimate the power of a soft response. Gentle response. The reason why is the following. God wired up our body and minds to act in congruence, which means that it's very difficult for you to feel 
happy on the inside and tell someone else that you're depressed. You won't be able to do it. It's very hard for you to feel depressed on the inside and tell everybody, I'm so happy. It will not last. Because you and I are built in such a way that we need congruency between what's going on inside of us, our perception, our emotion, and the way we are perceiving ourselves on the outside by the way we dress, the way we walk, the way we talk, our facial expressions. So tell us Chazal, this is also from the Sefer HaChinuch, the most powerful method to break anger is practicing responding to people in a soft, gentle voice. Because if I speak softly, it's very hard for me to feel the same intensity of anger. It actually brings it down a notch or two. And the more we practice a soft response, a gentle voice, the more consistent we get at it, the less we actually are showing anger on the outside and the less we get to feel it on the inside. Try it. More and more and more and we feel the results. We see the difference. Being soft-spoken to someone who's not being soft-spoken to us is a very powerful way to bring their voice down. It puts us back in control. It gives us more self-respect and they will respect us more for having not shouted back. King David was considered to be fourth after Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov. How did he get to be called fourth? And the answer is, not because he was the fearless general who killed Goliath, who sang the praises of Hashem, who always thanked Hashem throughout his life, no matter what the adversity, even though those were amazing accomplishments, what our hachamim, what the sages, identify as the one act in his life that put him on par with Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov, was when Shimon ben Gera came out when one time David Melech was running away from his enemies and Shimon ben Gera, who was actually one of his rebbes, cursed him, threw stones at him. And David, with his followers, were there. His followers said to King David, how can you take that abuse? Kill the guy. Curse him back. And King David's response, outwardly and inwardly, was Hashem sent those words in his mouth. Hashem will take care of him. Don't touch him. Say our sages, that is what put David Melech on par with the, the patriarchs. When we conquer ourselves inside at the deepest level, that's where we, we reveal our deepest strength, our real gavura, our true power. Got two more, two more minutes. I'm gonna let, let me open it up. You've been very patient with me. I'm going to open up for questions and comments. Yeah. Williams, when you're in the middle of that anger, of that rage, you say you have a short, soft, gentle speech. How is that possible when you're enraged at that moment? You can't Good question. Okay. Off. Yes, you can. That you can. Yeah, I could scream. I could scream in my mind, or softly Shmaiyisrael, or take a walk around the block. But ultimately, what we're saying over here, and it's, it's not, it's not more than simple and profound. It's it's it's, it's as simple and profound as, as I'm going to say these words. Not just coming from me. This is what Chazal tell us. Choosing to say the word softly will reduce the feeling of anger. It actually will reduce it. Because I'm built so that I cannot be incongruent unless I lie to myself. It's very hard to continually feel the anger. Now it's true. The first times you try it, if I haven't done it often, 
<laughs> well, I see what you're saying. I can't take it anymore! <laughs> Get out of here! It will explode. Doesn't matter if that happens another hundred times because we're worried about not where we are now, worry about where we're going. It will take time. Softly spoken responses will turn the anger around and it will turn their anger around. Becoming more consistent, it's, it's, no, it's no more a secret magic formula than exactly that. Yes, you can walk around the block. We can come up with all sorts of strategies. What to tell myself? Well, in order for me to be angry, I must believe that God doesn't exist. You can tell yourself that if you want. And it might even help. Because wait a minute, that's absurd. God exists. That means he's behind this too. Oh, well, I guess I have to listen. Yeah. Um, you said that, that we don't have any common behavior with our speech, but isn't there a passive aggressive behavior? I mean, there are people who are angry, and they're like enraged. Right. I mean, there is a concept like that. Okay, so we're, we're talking about a deliberate training, a conscious training where the reason why I am employing, by choice, soft-spoken answers and responses is because I am practicing becoming righteous in patience. So the passive-aggressive person isn't aware. Absolutely. And even if they are aware at the time, they're probably not. We're talking about a career, a real career, a true career, a corporate career in patience. And that is where our self-esteem is mostly fueled. Yeah. Help to, like, in order to control the anger, does it help to first identify it and really understand it? Or is it better just not even to think about it and just say to yourself, well, I'm just going to, whatever it is making me angry, I'm just going to respond in a soft and gentle way? Good, good question. When I have a choice of anger, is what should I be focusing on? thinking about it a lot, or are you just focusing too much on it and then just makes you more angry? Okay. I think the answer to your question is I need to be very intelligent and mature about my anger. Which means, if by suppressing it, or ignoring it, or denying, and saying, you know what, I just have to be soft-spoken because I know that's what's going to count in the end. But meanwhile, the, the cause of the anger is still brewing, I, I, do need to, I do need to give it some attention and listen carefully and ask myself, how can I deal with this? Le mat, what is this leading me to? But uh, generally speaking, the soft-spoken approach is to deal with the anger in the moment. After I'm out of the anger, I can start talking about what was it that really got, what was the button that was being pressed. But if I try to do that closer to the actual time, I'm more likely to, to, to get confusion than clarity because I'm in emotion, in the emotion. What if I say you, you know, um, uh, you tried to do that, let's say, you know, somebody did something that was, that really you think was right, right. and you were angry about it. Right. Uh, um, what if, you know, you, you try those methods and you still feel yourself, you know, you try, you know, calmly telling the person you didn't like what they did and, you, you know, you had a reasonable response but for some reason you find that you're still angry. You know, is this something that's still, maybe you haven't identified the No, no, it, I, I, I may still experience anger for a long time. I have to commit myself that this is something I'm here to conquer. Yes, I have to understand the best I can, but I only really have two options in my Jewish career in dealing with anger conquer or communicate ultimately the goal is to conquer it entirely but until I reach that I do need to communicate it to myself and to the person that I feel that I'm in in conflict with the communication is about speaking softly the mitzvah of 
rebuke, which is an unfair translation or reprimand, an unfair translation because Rashi tells us many times in Chumash, wherever you see the word Toichaka, it's a lashon of birur, a language of clarification. I need to clarify with you what this is really about. And when I speak softly, without anger in my voice, that's when we can communicate and get somewhere, identify what is my anger, what is it you're doing, saying, just pressing these buttons. Follow?